Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The Radical. Fundamental Principles of freedom, rational self-interest, and individual rights. This is The Yaron Brook Show. All right, everybody, welcome to Yaron Brook Show. And I know you're not seeing any video right now, but there it is. It came on. So, uh, hi, everybody. On this uh Thursday evening. I hope you're having a uh, a great uh, a great week. Uh, sorry, I haven't done as many shows as I expected to. Some family emergency stuff, and uh, anyway, everything everything is uh, everything is okay now. So uh, we are back. We are back. Uh, expect the show today, maybe tomorrow night, and then uh, Saturday is my birthday. So probably not on Saturday, but Sunday certainly a show on Sunday. Um, so, uh, good. Uh, things opening up. I'm excited. Uh, Puerto Rican governor announced today that uh, Tuesday, Tuesday uh, restaurants will be opening. Uh, they can open up at 25% capacity. Uh, stores can open, but you can't try on the shoes or the clothes. You have to take them home, maybe try them then and bring them back. So, uh, but stores will be opening and, uh, and restaurants, 25% capacity. That's fine with me. Better than zero. Uh, and, and pretty much, pretty much, it looks like most things. Oh, yeah! Importantly, barbershops are going to be open on Tuesday, so I will out finally get a haircut. I've been looking forward to a haircut for quite a while. This is getting a little unruly, um, and uh, it's been a long time since I've had long hair, and this is too long for me. So, uh, looking forward to getting a haircut. I'm not sure what exactly the regulations are going to be about haircuts, but. Yeah, the law is going to be that you have to wear a mask everywhere. Malls are going to open. Uh, they've got all kinds of regulations per square foot, how many people are allowed in the mall and everything. Um, yeah, so, I, you know, oh, beaches, beaches, importantly, beaches are opening. But beaches are opening under certain restrictions, right? So beaches are opening. Well, we've got somebody from uh, Nanjing, China. Hey. Uh, Fifa, great, uh, great to have you on from, from China. That's great. Um, so beaches are opening, but beaches are opening. So this is the deal. You can walk on the beach. You can run on the beach. You can exercise on the beach. You can go in the water and swim on the beach. What you cannot do, God forbid, what you cannot do is sunbathe on the beach. You can't sit on the beach. You can't just lie down on the beach. You can't put out a towel and lie down because, God forbid, you might infect the sand. Because I don't know who else you're going to affect sunbathing at the beach. 
I guess, I guess in Puerto Rico they're afraid of big family gatherings coming around with their coolers and their barbecues and, and, and having a big festival, you know, uh, uh, you know, everybody, no social distancing, everybody just hanging out at the beach as one big family. And they'd much rather people do that at home. I mean, this is the kind of insanity that this coronavirus has engendered in people. It is so much safer if you're going to have a party, to have a party at the beach, outdoors, in the sunshine. It is so much safer in the sunshine than it is in, um, inside, indoors, no circulation. That's how you get sick. I mean, it looks like coronavirus has spread very easily from person to person in indoor situations that are very, where people are packed together. So indoor parties, you know, indoor choir practices, they've got to study on a choir where almost everybody in the choir got infected. Uh, not only were they singing, but they also, they also uh, had a little, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, time where they where they were socializing and they were drinking, eating, and there was also uh, moving chairs around and folding chairs, unfolding chairs, and all of that activity and all that interaction with people. That is what got them sick. But it's in that closed space, outdoors. More and more and more evidence suggests you're pretty safe. But now. Can't have people lying around on the beach. Who knows who they'd infect? You know, as they lie there, they would spit out coronaviruses up into the air, and people passing by might get... I mean, it's nuts. It's nuts. So, yeah, but, but things are opening up. So, so yeah, this is, this is going to be good. I'm, I can't wait to, to go to a restaurant. I can't wait to, uh, to kind of go and walk around in the streets and maybe... You know, I, I don't like shopping, so I'm not looking forward to shopping, but I can't wait to go to the beach. So I won't lie around. I'll, I'll walk and I'll swim and I'll walk and I'll swim. Cool. As long as I get to swim, as long as I get to go in the water, I am going to be a happy crab. I am going to be happy on the beach. So uh, things are looking up. Things are looking up. Now, this trend of opening up is all over the country. It's not just here in Puerto Rico, but it seems like state after state is opening up, and this is really, really good news. And, of course, the whole phenomenon of opening up has become tribal. It's become, um, you know, some people support it, and, uh, and they, they, they support it primarily because their side is supposed to support it, and some people against it, and it's because their side is supposed to be against it, I guess, because, you know, it doesn't sound like e- either one on either side has very good arguments to support their cause. Uh, but but that's the name, you know, coronavirus, more than any other phenomena, here, here's a scientific phenomena, science-based phenomena, fact-based phenomena, uh, that can be evaluated based on science, based on facts, based on information, based on data. All that is irrelevant to most people, it seems, because uh, it seems like it's all, it's all political. Which medicine you think is good for coronavirus. Now, why anybody who doesn't have a medical degree has an opinion about this, I have no idea. But the medicine that you think is good or bad for coronavirus depends on what political party you lean towards. Now, that's insane. I don't have an opinion about medicine. Uh, 
and I read a lot about these things, why do people who don't have medical degrees have an opinion about medicine? Isn't that left to the doctors and scientists? And, and, and you know, you can read about it online, and, but then ask the, ask the doctor. Whether to open up or not open up is not associated with science, facts, evidence, economics, human life, anything like that. It's, it's much more correlated now with political affiliation. Where do you think, where do you think this was a really bad virus and it actually killed a lot of people or not? It's not a question of fact. It's not a question of data. It's not a question of, it's not an empirical question. It's a question determined by whether you happen to be a Democrat or Republican. Whether young people are susceptible to this disease is a question of politics, not a question of empirical data. And on and on and on you go. Everything about this crisis has become a political question. It has nothing to do with the data. And indeed, as we'll see in a minute, if you are for opening up the economy, then you're obviously, unequivocally, according to some people, just a racist. If you weren't a racist, then you wouldn't be for opening up the economy. And it, on and on it goes. It, it's, it's got nothing to do, again, with data, freedom, principles. It's just purely a political question. I, I don't know. I don't know where you go from here. I don't know where the culture goes from here. I don't know where society goes from here. I don't know where the politics goes from here. It, 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 I don't see what, um, what moves it in an objective direction, not an objectivist direction, it's just an objective direction. What moves it away from this mindless politis- politicization of everything? Everything. You know. And it's, it's, I don't know. I just, I think it's scary. I think it's very, very scary. And, and it, it, it does not bode well for elections. It does not bode well for accepting elections and accepting legitimacy of elections and, and it does not bode well for separation of powers it does not bode well for getting anything done it does not bode well for the future of freedom in this country uh, but on the other hand neither side is strong enough and big enough to actually yet to actually you know uh, act in an authoritarian way against the other side so at this point we've kind of got a stalemate of two different political views that both lean towards authoritarianism, but neither of them can get away with it because the other side is too strong. And how do you, how do you get out of that? How do you offer a better third alternative? You know, that is going to be, the, I think, the, the real challenge, the political challenge of the future, you know, well, before objectivism, before we get to that debate. But just, just how do we maintain the American system of government given given the tribalism, given the mindlessness um, on both left and right, on, on both sides of this. Now, I think at the end they're going to unite under one platform, and it's not clear what that platform will be, but they'll find a platform that will unite both of them in their ultimate um, authoritarianism, in authoritarian streak to them. Uh, and you know, it, it, it will be interesting to see how that all comes about and when that all comes about, but, but again, all of it adds up to being a, a scary time to be in America, to be in the world. I, I actually think that 
the whole decision about opening up in other countries seems to be less political. It seems to be less motivated by politics. It seems to be less tribal. So I don't know. It, it very much seems right now, and maybe this is just my bias because I live in America, that America is worse than other countries in terms of its, these kind of approaches, this approach to, to science, to evidence, to facts, to medication, to treatment, uh, and that, that there isn't this bifurcation in the rest of the world, that, that people are still looking at least, you know, maybe f- in bad ways and flawed ways, but they're still looking at facts and evidence more than they are to political and, and political affiliation and... and um, All right, um, so what I, what I wanted to do is I found this article. I thought this was interesting. I found this article by, you know, somebody who's awfully anti, anti, um, uh, you know, anti-opening up. So this is somebody on the left who's against opening up. And he has, and he wrote an article in Medium. His name is Tim Weiss. And he wrote an article in Medium called 10 Questions for Those Opposed to Lockdowns. 10 Questions to those opposed to lockdowns. And I found the questions interesting, revealing, uh, revealing philosophically, economically, politically, ideologically, philosophically revealing of, 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 of a certain mentality. And therefore I thought they would be interesting to go over and, and consider kind of my answer, which is not going to be the answer of, of most people who are for opening up. So these are my answers, uh, kind of a, a, an objectivist's answers to 10 questions for those opposed to lockup. Okay, so here's the first one. And they're long questions, detailed questions, and, and all from the same perspective. And see if you can identify what the perspective is. What is the fundamental flaw in the way he is asking these questions? So the first one is this. If businesses are opened up, should customers, patrons, and employees be required to follow social distancing and safety guidelines for at least the next few months? Or should decisions about masking, spatial distancing, seating, and or standing capability, capacity be made by each individual or business owner as they see fit? Now, that is a great question in a mixed economy because almost everybody is going to answer, oh, no, no, they should be required to follow social distancing requirements, safety guidelines, because after all, we don't allow people to smoke in restaurants. We regulate restaurants in a million, and, and stores and everything else, and human behavior generally in a million different things in order to protect individuals from themselves. We don't allow people to choose for themselves anything. So why would the coronavirus be any different? So I think many people on the right would actually argue for opening up, but regulating it, but, but controlling it. And if they're not, if they're not, then they're hypocrites, right? You know, then, then are they going to allow restaurants to make this choice? Are they going to allow businesses to make this choice? I get to that point in a second. So my answer to this is, of course, of course, it shouldn't be dictated by the government. Of course, this should, is a decision that should be left to business owners into customers. And if customers don't like the social distancing um, rules established by the business, they don't have to go there. They don't have to go there. It is the business that should determine 
what kind of, whether you should wear a mask or not, whether you should, what the distance should be from patron to patron. Some businesses are going to be more conservative than the government. Some businesses are going to be less conservative than the government. Some businesses might be completely irresponsible. And then it's the job of, if you will, the job of customers to regulate the businesses by saying, oh, you're going to be irresponsible. We're not going to come. We're just not going to show up. So I'm for liberty. I'm for freedom. Businesses and customers should make these decisions. Now note that underlying this question is an assumption that says people cannot make decisions for themselves. They're not rational enough. They're not responsible enough. And you need a government. You need a central planet to tell them how to behave, what to do. That's underlying this, and you'll see that throughout. Okay. So that's question number one, is I leave it to businesses and customers and let businesses and customers deal with it as they will. And I encourage people, I would encourage people to be rational. This is a real disease. Some people are super vulnerable to it. Others, not so much. Do you know, somebody told me this today. True fact, statistical fact. It is just as likely in Pennsylvania for somebody... 40 or younger to die from coronavirus. And it is as it is. So if, if you just look at the distribution of people who die, there are about as many people who've died of coronavirus under the age of 40 as they are over the age of 100. Now, the population of people over 40 is much larger than the population of people over 100. And yet, and yet, it's... The, 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 the number of people died over 100 is, is the same as the number of people died under 40. This is a disease of old age. I've said this all along. I've been talking about this for two and a half months. And they are the most vulnerable. The most vulnerable group is the group that typically doesn't go to work. That typically, you know, that certain subsection of them doesn't go out that much either. They're less likely to be in restaurants. They're less likely to be in shops. And then you have to decide, based on facts, how risky it is for everybody else. But people don't want to hear that. If masking and distancing are left up to individuals and business owners, how do we deal with situations where some patrons go to a bar or restaurant, or customers go to a store, or employees go to their workplace and are trying to be careful about contact with others? sanitizing, keeping distance, etc. But others are exercising their freedom not to mask, sanitize, or worry about such things. Then he asks, is the burden on the concerned individuals to leave or quit their jobs in deference to the freedoms of the unconcerned? If so, isn't this tantamount to saying that the rights of people who are cavalier about public health and endangering others should outweigh the rights of others not to be endangered? You don't No, it's not tantamount to saying that. It's tantamount to saying we all have the right to decide on our risk tolerance. We all have the right to decide what level of cautiousness we are going to exercise. And if it's an environment where we feel uncomfortable because we think the risk is too high, then we leave. And look, I don't know what your risk tolerance is. I don't know whether you have pre-existing conditions. I might be able to tell how old you are, but not more than that. You need to be responsible for your life. 
Now, again, the assumption here is that I think that most individuals are irresponsible. Most individuals don't care. Most individuals are going to spread their viruses all over the place. And that the few responsible, rational, data-driven people are going to be unsafe and are going to be threatened by all of this. Now, again, take into account the fact that this coronavirus is not a big threat to anybody under the age of 40 and really to anybody under the age of 65 or 60 or something around there. This is not a big deal unless you're old and unless you have some significant pre-existing conditions. And even there, if you're young and healthy, otherwise, it's less of a risk. So people have the freedom to live. People have the freedom to make decisions for themselves. Most people, I believe, are going to be responsible, are going to be careful, don't want to inflict their fellow man. And I think it's moral not to want to inflict other people with potential risk and potential virus. And therefore, you keep them away. Now, again, by the way, if you test and isolate then you exclude from society those people who are clearly risk, uh, you know, inflicting risk on others. But most people don't have this disease. And therefore, most people's behavior is not a risk to other people. They are not endangering anybody. 95 to 99% of the people out there don't have coronavirus and therefore are not endangering others. So, why penalizing those who are not endangering for the sake of those who are risk-averse instead of having those who are risk-averse find ways in which to live their lives without taking on too much risk? We all have different risk preferences. So instead of setting policy based on the weakest, based on the most needy, based on the most fearful, based on the most risk-averse, let's set policy where we're all free to make our own choices about the level of risk we want to take and about our own behavior. Make sure to exclude those that have tested positive, but let the rest of us live. Let the rest of us make choices about our own lives. What what kind of risks we're willing to take and not willing to take. Imagine you're on a highway and suddenly everybody around you Start driving like maniac. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan. And we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily Daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com. That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. They zigzag. They speed. You see accidents happening. Just things are going crazy on the road. What do you do? Like, let's say you're driving and suddenly you're in Italy. 
And if you can't handle that, don't drive in Italy. Don't drive in Italy. I mean, people drive like maniacs in Italy. Now, I love it. I love it. Because I drive like an Italian, right? Look, yes, I mean, suddenly if they're driving in ways that are clearly objectively risky to you, then that's what traffic laws are for. And there would be traffic laws even in a completely private society because the people who own the road would have an incentive to have traffic laws to encourage you to drive. And this is the point about the business owners. If the people inside the business are clearly engaging in risky behavior and there are accidents, that is, people might have gotten infected in this business, then the business owner, in order to encourage people to keep coming to the business, has a strong incentive to rein in that behavior, kick out the bad guys and keep the people who are not and encourage the people who are, who are more responsible to it to come to the restaurant. Right? So rules make sense if and when their behavior is clearly risky and the owner identifies as such. What I find interesting, and, and here I'm going to go after conservatives for a minute. If conservatives believe supposedly in property rights, if they believe the baker has a right not to bake a cake for a gay couple, then how can they object to Costco requiring them to wear a mask? It's Costco. It's a private business. Costco gets to set the rules of engagement. It gets to determine what kind of behavior is acceptable within their store and what kind of behavior is not acceptable within their store. And yet, conservatives are complaining right now because Costco is demanding that they wear masks. Because Costco is trying to be responsible. I keep going back and forth. I keep going back and forth with, uh, with regard to masks. And I know, like, uh, Amesha Dalja doesn't think masks really help and, and there's certain risks associated with wearing masks. I, you know, I keep going back to Asia. And I keep going back to Asia's success with this virus, to, to, to South Korea... Taiwan, Hong Kong, and Singapore. In Hong Kong, I just read an article about how most of the success was voluntary, was, was people's voluntary behavior. And if you think about one of the things that makes Asia different, one of the things that makes a difference is that they all wear masks. So I wonder if wearing masks does indeed really help in this case, particularly if you happen to have the disease and don't know it. And therefore, if you cough and sneeze, you're coughing and sneezing into the mask and you don't let the particles out to everybody around you. So actually, coming to believe that masks are very helpful in a society where everybody's wearing masks uh, actually reduces the probability of, of uh, this infection going crazy. And Costco is completely legitimate. It's their stores. So how can conservatives, how can people who claim to be pro-property rights, claim to be pro the right of the baker to bake, to bake or not to bake the cake, how can they be against Costco deciding whether you have a mask or don't have a mask? But that's, that's on the right. So, so this is the left. So, yeah, I mean, the assumption that everybody's going to be responsible is, again, embedded into the question. The assumption that business owners are not going to be responsible is embedded into the question. And the assumption that we must sacrifice for the sake of the most risk-averse, the most fearful, the most weak and needy 
That's altruism is at the base of that second question. Okay, here's the third question. If an employer decides they don't want employees to wear masks, what should employees with health conditions placing them in high-risk groups do? Should the employer be allowed to fire such employees if they refuse to come to work unmasked, even though they usually would not be able to do so because of health conditions such as these? Now, first, I believe employers should be able to fire you for anything. I believe employees should be able to quit for anything, unless there's a contract that specifies something else. So, yes, if the employer decides that in my business, in my restaurant, in my store, nobody wears masks, they should be able to fire you for if you insist to wear a mask. That's, you know. Now, how often would that happen? I don't know. But think about this, too. This guy, Tim Weiss, who's writing this, believes that the lockdown should persist. So this person doesn't have a job anyway. This person who doesn't want to wear a mask and now he's been fired is right back to where he was when the lockdowns were happening. He doesn't have a job. The difference is that Tim doesn't want anybody to have a job and Tim doesn't want any business to be open and Tim doesn't want any business to be able to make choices about opening, about the kind of opening, about you know how to treat its customers and how to relate to customers. And Tim... I know, is, is, uh, is, on Facebook, can you, can you see video? If anybody's on Facebook and, and they've got, oh, there it is, okay. I don't know if video's coming in and out, what exactly is going on. Um, and Tim doesn't want customers to be able to access the stores. So Tim, in the name of, of the employee who might be fired because he's not willing to not wear a mask, wants to fire everybody wants to destroy every business, wants to make us all dependent on the state, wants to cripple all of our lives, wants to make consumption almost impossible, wants to make shopping and going to restaurants and all those things impossible. Why? To protect this one employee or 10 employees or 100 employees or a million employees who want to wear masks in situations where their employer does not. Notice the altruism. It's all geared towards the weakest. Notice the complete disrespect for healthy individuals, the complete disrespect for businesses, the complete disrespect for employees who are willing not to wear a mask and who just want a job. Notice, too, a lack of any understanding of economics with the idea that we can all not go to work. We can all stay home and receive checks from the government, and that's somehow a solution to the problem, that lockdowns somehow solve anything. Well, they don't. Again, they might stop in the short run overwhelming the hospital system. But that's it. That's the only thing they're good for. There's certainly not a solution to these employees because the lockdowns, they don't have jobs. All right, question number four. If you advocate opening things up, what should the 45% of Americans who fall into high-risk health categories do about their job if they still have them? Or old Americans who, despite age, are still in the workforce? Should they be allowed to choose to remain sheltered in place and still be able to keep their jobs, even if their boss wants them back at work? If not, 
Doesn't that mean that even people in high-risk groups should be forced to go back to work and risk their lives? Well, right now, they're getting checks from the government. If they stay home, they'll continue to get checks from the government. There's such a thing as unemployment insurance. They would get that. Employers are completely legit, and they have fired people who are not coming back to their work. Um, Employers need to open up their businesses. They need to start working. Old Americans and high-risk in high-risk categories, need to talk to their doctors, assess the situation, talk to their employers, see if they can come to some kind of solution with their employers where they can go to work and stay safe. Or maybe the employer is willing, if they're high-valued employees, to keep their job for them while they self-isolate. But for how long? Until there's a vaccine? Is that six months? A year? Two years? Three years? Is the employer supposed to pay their wages for three years while these people are not working at all? Who is employed just to be sacrificed because somebody is needy, is in need? And I feel for these people. It's not that I'm dismissing their, their pain. This is a real problem. This is why, by the way, you should save. This is why you should have an aesthetic. You should have some money put aside for times where something might happen and you don't have a job. And right now, the government is paying them anyway. So, yeah, the 45% of Americans are going to have to figure it out. They're going to have to talk to their doctor, see how susceptible they really are, what the risks really are. Then they're going to have to go to their boss. And again, the assumption here is that employers, bosses, are jerks. Are a-holes who only care about, they don't care if it's employee X or Y, they're all interchangeable, I just want somebody at work. Well, what if somebody's been loyal and, and a really good worker and, and, and you like them, which is most employees. And, and what they're asking to is to wear a mask or what they're asking to is, is to be able to rest or whatever, you know, certain, certain ability to stay safe while working. Most bosses are going to say yes. Most business owners are going to say yes rather than have to train somebody new and have to deal with all the problems of somebody new. You're somebody I know. You're somebody I trust. You're somebody I've worked with. Again, the assumption is that human beings are in conflict, that human beings, that, that, that businesses exploit their workers, that businesses exploit their customers, that the able exploit the weak. No. That's not how reality actually works, certainly not in a benevolent society, which I think we still live in to some extent at least. So what right do you have to shut down all businesses because you think some workers won't be able to go back to their jobs? So you're making all workers suffer? Again, notice the altruism. The altruism is here everywhere because some people at risk Nobody should go to work because some people at risk, no businessmen should open their business because some people at risk, nobody should be able to go shopping or go to restaurants. We should all suffer because some people are at risk. The need, the need of the needy outweighs the rights of the individual. Question number five, if you do think they should be able to retain employment, I don't, i.e. not be fired for staying at home. Should they receive paid leave during the time they are at home? From whom? Or if not paid leave, should they be eligible to receive continued unemployment benefits or other government assistance to make it through the crisis? They are. There's nothing preventing them from getting unemployment insurance or other government assistance. 
Of course, in my world, there wouldn't be government assistance, but in my world, there would be charities and there would be other mechanisms by which they could support themselves, uh, including their own savings. If you answer no to these questions, aren't you saying that rather than people being allowed to choose to gamble with their lives, sick people who are at significant risk from COVID should essentially be forced to do so or else risk financial ruin? Yes, I'm saying they should risk financial ruin. But you see, the flip side is the same thing. Flip the question. You're saying that because some people at risk, all business owners should face financial ruin. You're saying because some employees are at risk, all employees should face financial ruin. Again, the, 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 let's say it's even 45%, whatever. You're willing to sacrifice 55% for the 45 but of course, it's not 45%. Because not everybody's equally at risk. Some people have more risk than other people. And that is something only they can assess, them and their doctor. But you, no matter what the number is, you want to sacrifice, and this is pure Christian altruism, you want to sacrifice the able, the healthy, the, the relatively prosperous, the successful, the young, to the old, the sick, the weak, the vulnerable. How is that right? How is it right to inflict financial ruin on all these people? You're a real sadist. But again, you know, you just flipped the argument on them. It's, it, it, but they can get away with it. Because as soon as you say, but, 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 but they need help. That's, it, it engages the altruism and everybody, everybody succumbs. So, so Tim is very popular. All right, we continue. What should otherwise healthy people do if they have an immune-compromised, immunocompromised child, spouse, partner, or other family member at home, or a family member with another serious health condition that would place them at high risk should they contract the virus? Should they be allowed to remain at home, as with the above question, and receive unemployment benefits or other government assistance? They can now. What's the issue? Even though they are technically able to go to work and not at risk themselves. If you say no, then they should not be able to stay home and collect such benefits if, if there is a job available, what would they do with their children or family members until the crisis passes? Send them to live with relatives, put them in plastic bubble of some sort, or not interact with them for the next five or six months? Well, one thing they could do. Here's a solution. I mean, it's a pretty radical and crazy solution. But here's one solution. They could debt test it. Now, imagine that the tests, if they were allowed, could get really, really cheap and really, really plentiful. And you could get tested you know, every day or, or, or once every three days, based on what the doctor recommended, once every three days to make sure you weren't contracting the disease. Now, we still don't know to what extent asymptomatic people are indeed infectious. There's some controversy about this. And it's not clear if you, in the early days when you got the virus, but still are not symptomatic, if you actually are infectious. So, I, you know, if you test yourself twice a week, you know, and, and yes, that's an expense. And maybe, maybe your health insurance would cover it, given that you've got an immunocompromised child, spouse, partner, or some other person. Or maybe, you know, maybe the, the certain charities would cover it. Or maybe you just pay it out of pocket because it's worth it to you because you're better off working and paying for the test than not working and being on government dole. 
But again, same premise. Let's think of the outliers. Now, granted, there's a lot of people in this situation. But we are supposed to customize all of our lives, all the public policy to accommodate these people. Now, you could probably get unemployment benefits right now if you stayed home for these reasons. Now, again, I'm not for unemployment benefits. I'm not for government involvement in welfare and so on, although right now, what's the option? I don't, I don't believe in taking away welfare as the first thing one would do in the movement towards freedom and, li- and liberty. There's a lot of other things you would have to do before that. But this is, again, a reason why you want to save in life, why you want to put some money aside, even if you have to live at a lower standard of living for a while, in order to facilitate that saving. This is why it's important to keep up with science and to keep up with the fact that if you wash your hands frequently, if you wear a mask, if you try not to touch your face, not stick your hands in your mouth all day, and if you get tested frequently, the fact is, the fact is, you're unlikely to infect somebody else. And if that somebody else in your household happens to be over 70 years old, then yes, maybe you can send them to live with a relative. Maybe you can put them up in a hotel. Maybe, maybe you can put them in their room and ask them not to leave that room. And make sure that you don't interact with them or you interact with them as little as feasible. But that seems reasonable to me rather than Tim's solution, which is to stop all of our lives for the sake of this one family. And even if it's a million families, for the sake of them, everybody else needs to stop. No, figure it out. Life is full of problems. Let's figure solutions out. Not as a collective, not from the top down, but in your particular situation as a family, figure out how you can do this. But no, people are stupid. People are irrational. People aren't smart enough, people are poor, people don't have enough bargaining power, people, always excuses you get from the left on why people are not capable of taking care of themselves, not capable of solving problems, and why all of us must sacrifice for their sake. Now, I'm happy, for example, for family like that, if they can't get tested enough, I'm happy to donate money to get testing. Open up the economy, and I'll donate, I'll pick up a family, and I'll donate money to make sure that that family gets testing frequently so that they don't get sick. And I'm sure lots of people would be willing to do that. Maybe even this woman's, I'm assuming it's a woman or a man or whatever, maybe whoever this employee is, maybe even their employer would be willing to pay for them to get tested so that they can come back to work. The, 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 The extent to which these people hate, hate, the idea of people taking care of themselves, of people thinking for themselves, of people making decisions for themselves, is stunning. And this is prevalent on the left and on the right on different issues. This is a leftist perspective. But you get the same kind of attitude on certain issues on the right. If deaths from this virus were disproportionately occurring among younger, otherwise healthy, middle to upper middle class, and white Americans, would you still be cavalier about opening everything up and taking the risk associated with doing so. First of all, nobody is cavalier. I certainly am not cavalier about it. And yes, although there's no question that if this was younger people, healthy middle, or healthy people, put aside middle class because that's just racism, 
uh, not racism, that's just classism, and we'll get to the white Americans in a minute. If it was younger, otherwise healthy people suffering here, this would be a much bigger problem. Much bigger problem. Much bigger issue. Much scarier disease. Because the fact is that then you'd have to shut down the economy. If young people are dropping dead, how do you, you know, you wouldn't have to shut down the economy, but how would the economy function if a significant proportion of young people were dying? If the fact is that if the disease was hitting children, our attitude would be very different. Because there's a difference, and I know it's not PC to say it, but there is a difference between a child dying and somebody 85 dying. The 85-year-old has lived his life. A child does not. And a child's death devastates his parents. In a way that a parent's death is hard, but they're 85. And you expect that death to happen sometime in the next 5 to 10 years anyway. A child still has 85 years in front of him. So you can't, again, this kind of egalitarianism, all lives are the same. No, they're not. No, they are not. Now he says, what if this hit middle and upper class, upper middle class? Ooh, why would that make a difference? And white Americans. So this is the Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Racism of the left. Their racism manifests itself in that they think everything is motivated by racism. The racism manifests itself in that all they can think about is, I mean, it's a kind of a Marxist, Marxist, uh, racist aspect. All they can think about is classes. All they can think about is how to sacrifice the able to the weak, the able to the needy. And all they can think about is, ooh, what's the color of their skin? Who got sick? Oh, what color is it? Rather than thinking about why is it that the disproportionate number of blacks are dying from this, is it really their blackness that is causing them to die? I mean, maybe if you believe the stories about deficiency in vitamin D, blacks tend to be more deficient in vitamin D than others, then maybe that's weakening their immune system. I don't know. I don't have a position on that. Maybe it's because they tend to have a bad lifestyle and they tend to be more obese. I don't know. Again, it's an empirical question. Maybe it's the socioeconomics of it. Maybe among black families in places like New York, there's more intergenerational families together, living together, so that older people got infected from younger people. I don't know. All these are legitimate questions to ask. But the assumption is that you're for, if you're for freedom, if you're for choice, if you're for everything else, then you must be a racist. Because he says... If you answered, uh, uh, let's see, if you answered no, aren't you admitting you think the lives of those who are currently disproportionately affected, working class, older, less healthy, and people of color, are less valued than the lives of younger, healthier, and more affluent white people? Now, take out the white people, because I don't care what color skin you have. Yeah, I think there's a difference between older and younger. 
I think there's a difference between healthy and unhealthy. I think the differences. I don't think there's a difference between working class and, and middle class. I don't think that, that matters. But yeah, in some dimensions, there is a difference. And if you answered yes to question eight, if you're saying you would still support opening everything back up, even if the dying were mostly being done by white people, healthy people, younger people, more affluent folks, I have a bonus question for you. Why are you lying? In other words, we're all racists. And if this was hitting white people, we would not want the economy opening up. I, by the way, want the economy opening up even if white people are dying. And by the way, White people are dying. I don't think this is just a black thing. It's disproportionately, but it's still true that most of the people dying happen to have white skin for whatever that's worth. And yeah, as I said before, I think there's a difference if you're young or not young. Affluent? Why does affluent make a difference? If rich people are dying of this, wouldn't make me less inclined to open up the economy. What would make me inclined or not inclined to open up the economy is data, is information about the riskiness of behavior, about what causes, the vi- what causes people to die of it. And the argument to close down anything, to limit people's freedom, I mean, they would have to be, I don't, I, you know, it's, it's, it would have to be a pretty extreme situation where I would advocate opening up in any circumstances. Sorry, locking down in any circumstances. In almost all circumstances, I would argue for opening up. I don't, no matter who was dying, and then opening up responsibly. But that responsibility is the persons, not the states, not the governments. The responsibility is on you figuring out what's responsible given the data. Given the data. All right, those were the, I don't think there were 10 questions. I thought there were only eight questions. Anyway, um, that's Tim Weiss, leftist, anti, you know, anti-individual decision-making, anti-individual's ability to think for themselves, and pro-altruism in the worst kind of sense, right? Altruism is bad enough. But he explicitly wants to sacrifice the business owner, explicitly wants to sacrifice the able, explicitly wants to sacrifice the young and the healthy to the sick. I don't believe in sacrifice of anybody to anybody. Uh, It's interesting that in his bio, the way he defines himself is I'm an anti-racism educator author. No, Tim. What you are is, is a racist. Anybody who uses race to try to inflict guilt or to try to manipulate people or to try to suggest everybody else is racist. It's probably a racist. Anyway, I thought those were interesting questions. Hopefully you found them interesting. Uh, that took much longer than I thought it would. Wow. All right. I've got a bunch of Super Chat questions, so why don't we jump into the Super Chat questions. But, um, yeah, we'll probably release a video of just me criticizing this Tim Weiss article, which is just stunning. Um, Let's see. Let's see if there's anything related to this. Da-da-da. 
It seems like the lockdown argument comes from a purely pragmatic standpoint. Is it a non-principled pragmatic argument ever justified? No. A non-principled pragmatic argument is not ever justified because it's an anti-life argument, because it's an anti-reason argument. Reason is anti-pragmatism. Reason depends on long-term principled thinking. Pragmatism is the negation of principle and negation of long-term. It's the negation of reason. And any decision, any argument that rejects reason is unjustified. It's detached from reality. It's detached from values and should be rejected uh, offhand, right? And you just saw that the lockdown arguments are not purely pragmatic. They're motivated by morality, by ethics. Oh, the, the lockdown arguments are, are clearly uh, motivated by altruism. Or they are motivated, I wouldn't call it by pragmatic, but, but practical considerations. So there is a practical issue of, are so many people going to die that nobody will be able to cope? And, you know, because I've said, I'm, in, a, in a rational society, I think lockdowns could be justified if they were objectively defined, objectively approved by the, 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 the people involved in such decision-making, and were objectively the best solution to the problem. I don't think, and they were finite, and they were clearly defined. None of that occurred in this crisis. It's not the best solution. If it was the best solution in New York, it should have been finite, but it wasn't the best solution in New York until it was too late to have any other solutions. So, again, I'm not anti-lockdowns in all situations. I'm anti-global lockdowns, like the whole country being locked down. But there are situations where in a particular geographic area, in a particular place, in a particular block, in a particular city, you can imagine a lockdown for a particular period of time. If the threat was severe enough, if you could objectively determine that. In this case, I don't think they were justified. And they certainly were not justified on a global basis. But the explanation is not pragmatic. The explanation is always sacrificial. Why was northern upstate New York shut down? Why was upstate New York shut down? I mean, I understand maybe why New York City was shut down. It was upstate New York. For purely egalitarian, altruistic reasons. Is it even about serving the needy, though? Making everyone else sacrifice by not going to work doesn't create jobs for the needy who can go to work because they are vulnerable. The sacrifice isn't even helping them. That's true. But altruism is never about helping anybody. If altruism was about helping other people, Bill Gates would be a hero. If altruism was about helping people, then capitalism would be the system altruists embrace. But altruism is not about helping other people. Altruism is about suffering and about relative suffering. And as long as nobody, and it's about destroying the able, it's about knocking down success. So it's about everybody suffering and not letting getting some people out, you know, out of the suffering. It's why Mother Teresa is a saint. Not because she helped anybody escape suffering. She didn't. She made it possible for them to escape death so that they could suffer more. The extent to which suffering is caused, that is the extent to which you are a saint. It's not about success. It's not about enlightenment. So you're absolutely right. It's not like 
you know, by sacrificing the able, you're making the sick better off. No, the sick stay sick. They stay poor. They stay miserable. But now they are joined by the healthy who now are miserable with them. So altruism is about the destruction of the good. It's about dragging the good down to the level of the needy. It's about creating equality of outcome at the lowest common denominator. And that's what you see coming out of these questions. Right? So you're right. It's not really about serving the needy. It's about rejecting the... A- it's about tearing down the able. It's about pulling them down. It's about causing suffering to those who are competent, those who have jobs, those who are business owners, those who are producing and making. So everybody has to suffer equally. Even if under the alternative scenario, some suffer, but some don't. That, that some don't is unacceptable. If we accepted the, audi- the standards in the article, wouldn't we be locked down until there's a vaccine for every infectious disease now and in the future? It seems that way, yes. And I think some people on the left embrace this. The government will just print money and give it to you and pay you off. I mean, that's what, that's what, what do you call it, um, UBI is. This is why many people right now are pushing, pushing, pushing hard for UBI, universal basic income. Universal basic income gives every human being, every person out there, enough to live off of, whether they work or not. And actually, uh, Yang, who is the guy popularizing UBI, has said that given the, the pandemic, UBI has to be higher than what you originally thought. It's not enough to give people $1,000 a month. They're going to have to get more than $1,000 a month so that they can live off of it. So that they can live off of it. See, you can see how, you know, what that happens with Yang is, you know, I hate Yang. He's terrible because this is a, this is a horrible idea. It's an evil idea that he brings legitimacy to because he's cool and he's young and he's, and he's articulate. But it's an evil idea. It's the idea that people can stay home, not work, get a check, at whose expense? The people who do work. The people who do innovate. The people who do are willing to take the risk. Why should somebody else get my $1,000? has to come from somewhere. Somebody has to pay for it. And if the government just prints it, then it's just devaluing that $1,000 every month. And at some point, they're going to have to stop devaluing it and take money from me to pay for your UBI. How is it just, again, to live off the people? To live off the people who actually produce, make, build, work, work. For people who are too scared to leave the house and they're, they're, they're afraid and they, they, they don't want to go to work and they want to stay home. So they get, they get my hard-earned money? Why? Why? People tell me you don't have a right to own a business or go to work. If the government says so, they can shut you down. Your response. <laughs> The government is my servant. The government's job is to protect my right to own a business. My right to go to work. That's the job of the government. The only job of the government. 
The government is not my dictator. It's not my mother. It's not my boss. It's much, but it's, of course it's not my mother, my boss. My mother and my boss didn't have a gun attached to them. The government's responsibility is to protect my ability to pursue my values, my life. What next? The government will tell you when to have sex and what not to have sex, who to marry and who not to marry, what job you can, what job you cannot have. What is off limits to the government and why? If the government can tell me if I can own a business or not, if the government can tell me if I can go to work or not, what are the limits to what the government can and cannot? And who is the government? The government is your neighbor. The government is the majority. Can the majority dictate every aspect of my life? Can the majority decide that they don't like what I say? Can they stop me from speaking? Can the government decide to take all my stuff? Can the government decide to take my kids away? What are the limits? And who decides? The majority. And the majority can decide anything? And what if the majority isn't to your liking? What if the majority wants to do things that you don't want to do? So my response to that is, yeah, that's exactly what the Founding Fathers fought against. That's exactly the kind of government the Founding Fathers rejected. That's exactly what America stands up against. A government that tells you how to live, what business, you know, whether you can open a business or not, whether you can go to work or not. It's exactly what kingdoms, what dictators, that's authoritarianism. That's the end of freedom in America. All right, let's see. All right, let's take these in, uh, in order since they're not related to the, to the uh, issue. Okay, is holding onto anger like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die? Well, it depends what means holding onto anger. Uh, yeah, if, if, it's, if, if you hold onto it irrationally, if you let your emotions overtake you, if you let your emotions run your life, then absolutely, then it's like poison. But holding on to anger in the sense of, yeah, I'm angry at that person. And he hasn't done anything to stop me from being angry at that person. And I don't want to have anything to do with that person. And it's just a reminder that that person is somebody I don't want to have anything to do with. Then that's a good thing. That's a survival mechanism. It's an issue of justice. It tells you, that person, bad for you, keep away. So what you cannot do is let the anger dominate. Let the anger dictate your life, your value decisions, your behavior, your ability to be happy. But you want to keep enough of it or enough of a realization of it so that you remember whatever this person did to make you angry so that you don't engage with them. You don't do it again. You don't get involved again. Or you figure out how to resolve the anger. You figure out how to resolve the anger by resolving the situation. You get the person to apologize or you find out what was motivating it or you discover it was a mistake or whatever it is. Part of what the anger should motivate you to do is resolve the situation. If it's in not resolvable, then you have to put the anger aside 
but stay cognizant of the fact that this person made you angry, and that's a part of the equation of how you deal with it. But yes, your anger doesn't affect the other person. So if you obsess about it, you suffer. Nobody else does. When people say that's a reductionist argument, does that mean they don't believe in integration and thinking in principle? Well, it depends what, it, what the argument is. So I don't know what the context is. But it could be that they don't believe that arguments should be reduced to concretes because arguments should be. You know, proof is about connecting things to reality, reducing things to reality. And they might not believe in that as a methodology. So I'm not sure the context in which they are, they are saying that's a reductionist argument. It could be they, they don't believe in integration, but reduction is not integration. And it could be that they don't think in principle, but again, you have to be careful. You can't just say the principle to somebody else. Because what if they don't share the principle? You have to be able to prove the principle to somebody else. The reduction that you should do is not to a principle that they might not agree with. The reduction you must do is to a proof in reality, to an example in reality, to something that they can understand. A a principle is a massive integration and usually comes from an induction. But not everybody's going to share your principles. And you can't just say, well, that's my principle. You, you need to accept it or you need to just know it. You have to be able to prove the principle. And to prove the principle, you have to have a variety of examples all reduced to reality, to concretes in reality, and show how it all integrates into one principle, into one truth. Are you or have you ever been a fan of The Simpsons? No, I'm not and I haven't been. Assuming you've seen it, did you find the Iron Man School for Tots daycare center joke funny? I didn't find it funny, but I'm not a fan of The Simpsons. I never was. I never liked it from day one. And primarily because I don't like that form of, of, um, of illustration. I don't like the other one. I don't like any of those, any of those modern illustrated things. I, I don't like how they distort human figures and faces and it's silly and childish and and I just don't see the point in it you know I understand some of the some of the storylines were clever and some of the jokes were clever and and I thought that the the Ayn Rand School for Thought was just the usual undermining of of Ayn Rand's ideas yeah I don't I never liked Family Guy I never liked South Park I like certain episodes of South Park because of the humor but not because of the illustration I find the illustration stupid and 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 I don't like those kind of cartoons. I don't find them interesting. I, I'm far, I, I like Bugs Bunny like a million times better, and, and I find it much more sophisticated. Uh, the humor in, in South Park is sophisticated, although dominantly, I think, nihilistic. But, I, you know, I don't watch King of the Hill. I haven't watched any of these things. I don't like any of them. Again, I like Bugs Bunny. I like, you know, I, 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 I like the old, the old style of Disney animation. I like... A realistic, you know, full, um, uh, interesting, rich, animated environments. I'm having trouble seeing how objectivists decide what objective selfishness is. Why isn't the guy ditching his family for the hot 25-year-old at the bar acting in his own self-interest according to his own value judgments? So... This is not easy to answer quickly. But look, 
let's take the guy ditching his family for the 25-year-old at the bar acting. He might be. I doubt it, but he might be. Wow. Somebody is saying my morality is the morality of Kant. By the way, if you want to ask me a question, there's a super chat. I'll answer any question you have on the super chat, but I'm not going to answer questions in the chat. I don't see them all. And you've got people paying for their questions, and I prefer them. So, you know, you're insulting me on the chat is not going to get me to answer your questions faster. Putting a couple of dollars behind your question will get me to answer your questions faster. But <laughs> it doesn't really matter because you're not really interested in, in me answering a question. You're interested in just being insulting and being stupid. Um, This is the question that you have to ask yourself. In the long run, is this person going to be happier with the 25-year-old? And on principle, is this person going to be happier by chasing after any whim, every desire that he might have? Is desire, is whim, the standard of morality? the standard of human happiness, the standard of what should guide your decision-making? And the answer to that is no. Whims are not tools of cognition, and cognition, reason, is the means by which human beings achieve happiness. So therefore, an, an objective happiness is geared towards happiness. So if we decide, if we induce from reality that what leads to happiness is rational decision-making, using the evidence to make decisions about the long term. Then, if all you've done is you've seen a hot 25-year-old at the bar, you haven't thought about it, you haven't talked to her, you haven't engaged in any kind of thought process about this, and you just go rushing off with her, then that's clearly immoral. Because you haven't rationally considered it. Now, if you meet a 25-year-old, and you fall in love with her, and you consider all the alternatives. And you decided you don't love your wife anymore. And you're willing to support the child that you have, the family that you have, and you're going to now go off with this 25-year-old. Then it's in your rational self-interest. The standard is, is this rational? Is it considered? Is it something that is consistent with your principles? The principles that you have induced are good for you, are just, are long-term in your self-interest. Now, it is not true that there are only two options in life. And this is what this person trying to insult me is advocating, right? There are only two options in life. One is you follow duty, Kant's duty premises. You follow duty. You follow commandments. You do what you're supposed to do, period. And the other is, you're subjectivist. You can do whatever the hell you want in the instant, on the moment, whatever, whatever, where everything goes. That is primitive thinking. It's actually not thinking. That's just primitivism to have those two categories, and that's it. That's not moral thinking. That's not philosophical thinking. That's just primitive. And it's exactly 
the rejection of Ayn Rand. Ayn Rand's argument is that those are not the only two alternatives in life. Duty, emotion-based whim worship. There is a third way. And the third way is to define objectively from experience, from induction, what is truly good for you. Consequentialism is not a morality. And of course, you don't know what the consequences are going to be, and you still don't have a standard. Consequentialism doesn't give you a standard for what that morality should be, what, the consequence, what consequence is good and what consequence is bad. Consequentialism is nothing. It's a zero. It's, it's empty of content. Consequentialism to whom? For what? So moral individualism is about you deciding your life is what's important and then figuring out what are the principles to guide your life. And are they universal principles to guide all our life? Are we, do we as a biological entity have an identity? Are there certain things that are true for all human beings in terms of what will lead to their happiness and success? And to the answer that is clearly yes. Just like biologically, some things are poison no matter who you are, no matter what you think, some things are poison. Some things are objectively bad for you, and other things are objectively good for you. And therefore, the same thing is in two in spiritual values. Some things, some behaviors, some modes of being are good for you and some are bad for you. And you can look around the world and you can look across human beings and reason is good for you. Living by your emotions are bad for you. When you get into trouble, and almost everybody has this experience, when you get into trouble, it's almost always because you followed your emotions and you didn't think it through. So it's the thinking. It's the thinking that is crucial. So therefore, the is that says that thinking leads to success in life creates an art, which is if you care about life, you must think. That's a principle. It's not a categorical imperative. It's not in my mind before I did the thinking. I have to come to that conclusion through logic. And it's just the same as any other truth. It's a truth. So the fact that objects fall, the law of gravity, is a truth. The fact that reason is a requirement for human success is a truth. They have the same standing. And therefore, if you want to be successful in life, this is the path you must follow. Now, how you follow that path specifically to your values is your choice. But even there, some values that you might hold are going to be anti-life. And therefore, you should reject them as values, even though you want to do them. So, again, you don't really have an understanding of ethics if, if, uh, if you think 
that again, the only two alternatives or the consequentialism is a standard for anything because it's not. All right, why should a person, you know, consequentialism, uh, utilitarianism is a consequentialist and, you know, philosophers for a long time have repudiated justifiably utilitarianism. It's just a lousy philosophy. Why should a person who takes thinking seriously hate conspiracy theories? Well, because what does thinking mean? Thinking means going by evidence, going by facts, going by reality. And conspiracy theories are anti-facts and anti-reality. They're anti-reason. So the way to, so anybody who's thinking, anybody who takes thinking seriously, anybody who respects the human mind, anybody who respects reason should respect, reject conspiracy theories. Now, that isn't to say there are no conspiracies out there. There certainly are. There are lots of conspiracies. What makes conspiracy theories, as their common uses, crazy is the fact that they reject facts. They reject reality. They're not cognitive. They're not about thinking. They're about emotion. They're about speculation. They're about revelation. They're mystical. What are some affirmations or habits one can develop in, a, in the pandemic to become more like Howard Rourke? How does one control their anger and become unflappable, being in control of emotions in business? Well, again, I think one way to do that is to, I mean, I'm not a psychologist, but one way is to understand your emotions. The first step to controlling your emotions is to understand them, is to understand them and accept them and know where they're coming from and know why they're there. And understand your behaviors when these emotions happen. So it's not that Howard Rourke controls, you know, uh, you know, it controls in some, um, I don't know, uh, rationalistic way his emotions. He experiences his emotions. He understands his emotions. He recognizes his emotions. But he acts based on his reason. At the end of the day. Reason is what dictates his action. Thinking is what dictates his actions. Why he doesn't run off with a 25-year-old at the bar? Because he's a thinking being. So uh, the thing to do during a pandemic is to use the time to introspect, to understand yourself, to understand who you are and what you are, to understand your emotions, to refine your commitment to reality, to reason, and to rationality, and to expand your knowledge about life, objectivism, the philosophy, about the things that interest you. Become better at what it is that you want to do in life. Don't suppress your emotions. That's the mistake many people make. Don't suppress your emotions. Understand them. Accept them. Figure out the thinking that caused them. And if you think they're inappropriate in a sense that they're mistaken in that the thinking behind them is mistaken, not that the emotion is mistaken, then fix the thinking. So do a lot of introspecting during the pandemic or during generally in life 
and try to fix the bad thinking habits that you have. Um, no, I, I'll answer one of these questions. No, it's not possible to be happy doing bad things. It's not. Um, and if you're a psychopath, then you're sick. And you don't determine morality based on sickness. Right? And if you're a psychopath, you cannot be happy because you can't experience happiness. There's no way for you to experience happiness because part of what psychopath, psychopaths are is a detachment from an emotional state. But you don't determine human morality based on people who are abnormal and sick. That is not the standard. That is not right. If you're a psychopath, you're abnormal, and, and when you behave inappropriately, we lock you up. Are you excited about the news at UT Austin? Yeah, very excited. Greg Salamieri is going to be at University of Texas in Austin. He's going to head a new program on objectivity. Um, he is part of the Salem Center in the business school. He's going to be teaching in the philosophy department and potentially in the business school. So, um, yeah, I'm very excited about having two objectivist philosophers at the University of Texas in Austin. I'm very excited about um, the programs that are going to be initiated through Greg's program and the influence and the impact we can have, we can have uh, on the university, uh, on, on, uh, on, uh, on Texas, on the students, and on generally policymakers, because a lot of what the, the center, the, the, this program for objectivity, is going to deal with is, um, is policy-oriented. So I'm excited to have... Greg uh, committed to kind of a policy side of things. Is there something to say for the ancient Roman culture of dominance that catered to the strong and allowed the weak to fall behind? No, there's nothing positive to say about that. Uh, it's, it's the same sin just from the other perspective. Uh, you know, why go to Rome? What you need to go is to the founding of America. What you need to go to is to the idea of individual rights, and the trader principle. There's something to be gained from people who are not as strong as you. There's something to be gained from people who are not as smart as you. And that thing to be gained is to be gained through trade. And the way to engage with people stronger and weaker than you are is, stronger than weak in some dimension than you are, is through trade. I did not get a super chat, no. Uh, if that is a question. I've, I'm answering all the super charts I have received. So, no, I, I do not believe any kind of system that enslaves some people to others, that places some people in a dominance over others, not dominance in terms of ability, but dominance in terms of power, in terms of force over others is right. It's never right. Neither sacrifice yourself to others nor others to yourself. The way to deal with other people is through trade, value for value, win-win relationships. And Rome, I think, collapsed in the end because of those kind of power relationships, use of force, dominance of some over others in every aspect of life. Okay. Did you finish How Innovation Works yet? I hear that came out this week in hardcover. Uh, that he read the audio book. When is Matt going to be back on the show? 
All right, uh, Matt's going to be back on the show. When did we decide? Uh, in early June. Um, Matt Ridley's going to be back on the show. I don't remember the date right now. Um, I love the book. I, again, I don't agree with everything in the book. I, I don't think I've read everything, but I, I kind of skimmed it and read most of it, read a few chapters and, and, uh, and read a lot of the book. I'll try to read more of the book before I interview Matt again, but I, I'm thinking of talking to Matt more about the coronavirus and, and what's been happening. I, I think he has valuable insights into the science and into, uh, into what is going on in the world with regard to this. So I'm thinking of doing that, but, uh, We'll probably talk about the book as well, but that is coming up. The book just uh, came out. It's coming out this week. It came out this week in hardcover. I hope some of you have ordered it. Uh, it's, uh, it's, you know, the, the, uh, is the audio book out? Maybe the audio book is out as well, but I highly encourage uh, How Innovation Works is a, is a fantastic book. I encourage you to buy it. I encourage you to read it. I encourage you to support uh, Matt, even if you're not going to agree with everything Matt says. Um, you guys keep you got you guys keep being approached by hot twenty five year olds. I'm not, never have been, probably at this point never will be. Uh, hot twenty five year olds stay away from me for whatever reason. Uh, but you know, I don't. Yeah, I mean, maybe the guys on my super chat. I have a feeling that they're very successful with hot twenty five year olds. All right, guys. Um, Now, all right, um, we will talk more about morality uh, in future shows. It's a topic we want to talk more about. Um, no, you haven't seen it. That's not true. Jesus, people are, people are accusing me of all kinds of stuff now. Um, <laughs> uh, let's see, no more super chats. We are good, guys. All right. So uh, yes, and 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 we've got we've got we've filled in the uh, hour and twenty five minutes. Uh, there'll be a lot more about morality, um, and uh, Nagel, who uh, who equates me with Kant, really equates Ayn Rand with Kant, uh, is full of it. Uh, he's wrong, uh, but he can't think. He can't think in in nuance. He can think only in terms of the two examples that I gave. Uh, and uh, he, he, he doesn't really understand what objectivity means. He doesn't understand what objectivity actually is. Sorry your Super Chat didn't go through. Maybe next time. I have no interest in debating people um, unless it brings me a new audience, and I have a feeling, a strong suspicion, that you don't bring me a new audience, so I have no interest in debating you. All right, guys, uh, I'm not interested in ad hominems. I'm just stating a fact that your thinking is binary, like most people's thinking. It's binary. And as a binary thinker, you're limited. And until you break away from that binary, you can't understand what objectivity actually means. Objectivity, universality doesn't mean um, categorical imperatives. It doesn't mean duty. But again, if all you can think about is subjectivism versus, uh, versus uh, duty orientation, that's your only perspective, intrinsicism versus subjectivism. Which is, which is, Ayn Rand writes a lot about this. You can't comprehend what objectivity actually means. Objectivity is neither subjectivism nor intrinsicism. All right, maybe we'll have a philosopher on to, to explain that in more details one of these days. Bye, everybody. Have a great night. Oh, don't forget, don't forget, support the show. Thank you for the super chat, by the way. Don't forget to support the show. Um, yes, I will be talking about the Hong Kong, the new Hong Kong laws that China is trying to impose on Hong Kong and a future show. 
um, horrible, horrible, horrible what China's doing in Hong Kong and what they did during the pandemic in Hong Kong. Um, thanks, everybody. And uh, don't forget to support the show. Yuranbookshow.com slash support. I'm also on Locals, on Patreon, and on Subscribestar. You can, you can use all of those uh, in order to support the show. Subscribestar, Patreon, or Locals. Thank you all for doing that. And don't forget, of course, to like the show and to share it. Share it. And primarily share some of the shorter uh, videos that, come, that I bring out every day because I think those are easier for people to consume. There's, there's, uh, there's, there's short ones. I probably have a show tomorrow. I'll, I'll try to talk about China tomorrow. I'll write that down. China. China. Ah. Um, and uh, China in Hong Kong. Um, but I think there'll be a show tomorrow and then on Sunday. And then on Sunday. All right, $100 debate. Man, people think I'm really, really cheap. Um, no, I don't debate for $100. And I don't, I, I mean, this is not an insult, but I don't debate people who are not going to bring me an audience. Uh, for, to do a debate straight, my fee to do a speech or debate is 5000 bucks. Bring me 5000 bucks, I'll debate almost anybody. Not everybody, almost everybody. But it has to be real money. All right, thanks, everybody. Talk to you soon. Bye.